Hello, my friends. Today, I would like you to forgive me for the noise in the background. It's kind of noisy where I'm at. There's a lot of commotion going on out there. So, I'm tucked in and huddled in my little spot here. And I would like to read today from a, a very good book, one of my favorite books in my library called Ashavid Zarathustra, The Nordkind Race, and Asha Divine Natural Law by Eric Dryden. Very good book. If you haven't read it, I suggest getting it. It's pretty cheap, and it's a very large, heavy tome of a book, packed with uh, information and uh, just good spiritual advice straight from the sources. Um, just as a warning, he does have a bit of a twist to it. He equates the Northern European or Norded, as he calls Nordkin or Nordkind, um, to. Um, Zarathustra's um, venue and I don't think he's wrong for it but it's, it is an unusual pairing uh, where he effectively says that that Odinism is the same as uh, Mazdaism in essence that Odin is effectively the same essentially as Mazda is and I would not agree I would not disagree with that um because we have to remember Zarathustra took uh, the ideas of uh, tri-functionality within the Indo-European system uh, of uh, divinities and Indo-European culture. We have a ruling class, uh, warrior caste, and uh, uh, producer slash reproducer caste. So he took that and um, basically, Zarathustra basically said, that, look, it doesn't matter what you call your um, martial god or your ruling class god or your poet priest god They're, they are um, essentially the same as every other one in the Indo-European uh, pantheons and so let's just call them what they are instead of calling them Thor or Percunus or Perunus or Akma or Hercules or Zeus let's call them the Thunderer or the, the one who overcomes obstacles, and so that became the name Rathragna. And so you can see how he kind of did that. So really, any any um, Indo-European faith that is plugged into that formula uh, becomes an effective way of looking at things. And so we'll, we'll look at that, but I, I would like to read today on the subject. Uh, he talks about Aristotle in, in depth and Aristotle's ideals, and I'd like to read from there today. So... This is from chapter 7, Aristotle, or books, or section 7. Aristotle, 384 to 322 BCE. Aristotle was Plato's equally famous student. He was from Stigeria, an Ionian Greek city near the Aegean Sea's northwestern shore. The city was part of the Macedonian kingdom, and his father was a court physician to the Macedonian king, who was Alexander the Great, uh, Alexander the Conqueror's grandfather. At age 18, he went to Athens, which, like himself, uh, was ethnic, ethnically Ionian. There he became a student, and then an assistant of Plato, and he remained in Athens for 20 years, that is, until Plato's death. Then after about three years in Asia Minor, in 343 BCE, he became the tutor of Macedon's 
13-year-old crown prince. His pupil, later as King Alexander III, conquered West Asia and was unjustly known as Alexander the Great. Aristotle's most important error was encouraging the prince to conquer the Persian Empire. However, in later years when Alexander reigned supreme in the East, both Aristotle and his historian grandnephew, Callisthenes, criticized the monarch for adopting Levantine customs and for declaring himself a god. In reaction to such criticisms, the drug vaunt conqueror threatened Aristotle and he executed Callisthenes as a traitor. Nevertheless, when the conqueror died in 323 BCE, the anti-Macedonian Athenians tried to bring Aristotle to trial for impiety. Not wanting to repeat the fate of Socrates, he fled Athens but died within a year thereafter. This is um, quoted from MacDonald, uh, 1968, page 37 to 38. Aristotle studied a large variety of scientific and philosophical subjects, including astronomy, geography, zoology, politics, poetry, and metaphysics. Regarding astronomy, where Pythagoras and Plato had previously made an a priori assumption that the earth is a sphere, Aristotle, in On the Heavens, uh, provided sound empirical arguments for this largely correct perception. Unfortunately, less than half of his complete works have survived, and ironically, that portion was preserved by the Persians. Thereby, his writings played a role in the Persian-led intellectual golden age of Muslim culture, from about 750 to 1220 CE. His surviving works consist almost entirely of his lecture notes. These were then passed on to Europe in the 13th century and greatly influenced thought in the Western civilization. On the subject of God, the first mover, metaphysics, um, his teachings uh, are pretty significant. After Aristotle's death, many of his lectures were published by his son Nicomachus. Among these was a volume called Metaphysics in which Aristotle logically deduced the existence of God, the great, the creator of nature. Much like scientists since the 20th century, he recognized that the universe consists of eternal matter and form, or energy, which gives matter its different characteristics. All changes in matter and form have a cause. Therefore, there must have been an unchangeable eternal first mover. Uh, we, uh, this is talked about in metaphysics, his work, and also in... Um, Will Durant's book on philosophy. Moreover, God, the first mover, logically must consist of pure serene intelligence. God is always in that happy state in which we sometimes are, he said. We say that we say then that God is a living being, eternal and most good. End of quote from Metaphysics. Happiness, virtue, and the golden mean, Nicomachean ethics. 
Another volume of lectures compatible with Zarathustra's revelation was named after his son who published it, the Nicomachean Ethics. But it uh, is also called the Ethics. Aristotle began by discussing different notions of what happiness is. First, he observed, quote, the many, the most vulgar, would seem to conceive the good and happiness as pleasure, the life of gratification. Here they appear completely slavish, since the life they decide on is a life for grazing animals. Second, the, and that's in the quote. Second, the more cultivated people who are active in politics believe that honors bestowed by the state are the highest good. However, and I quote, it would seem they pursue honor to convince themselves that they are good, end of quote. Furthermore, for a mentally healthy person, clearly wealth is not the good we are seeking since it is merely useful for some other end. Aristotle asserted that happiness is obtained by becoming virtuous, and virtue comes to us as a result of our own actions. From uh, Ethics, uh, he writes, Virtue, then, is of two sorts, virtue of thought and virtue of character. Virtue of thought arises and grows mostly from teaching. Virtue of character, that is, ethos, results from habit, ethos. Hence, it is, uh, hence its name is ethical. Virtues we acquire just as we acquire crafts, by having previously activated them. For example, we become builders by building and harpists by playing the harp. And so also then, we become just by doing just actions, temperate by doing temperate actions, brave by doing brave actions. Hence, we need to have had the appropriate upbringing, right from early youth, as Plato says, to make us find enjoyment or pain in the right things, for this is the correct uh, education. However, just as people may cause harm to themselves and others by not practicing enough virtue, one can cause harm by practicing virtue excessively. For example, both excess and deficient exercises ruin strength, and likewise, too much or too little eating and drinking ruins health, while the proportionate amount produces, increases, and preserves it. Regarding bravery, he said the brave person stands firm in the face of death to avoid evil. In contrast, If someone avoids and is afraid of everything, standing firm against nothing, he becomes cowardly. But if he is afraid of nothing at all and goes to face everything, he becomes rash. Similarly, if he gratifies himself with every pleasure and refrains from none, he becomes intemperate. But if he avoids them all, he becomes some sort of insensible person. Temperance and bravery, then, are ruined by excess and deficiency, but preserved by the mean. Therefore, some vices miss what is right because they are deficient, others because they are excessive in feeling or in actions, while virtue finds and chooses what is intermediate. Inherent Evils The rule of moderation is a general guide, but it does not apply to all things, because some thoughts and actions are inherently evil. These include spite, shame, spite, shamelessness, envy, 
among feelings, and adultery, theft, murder among actions. Hence, in doing these things, we can never be correct, but must invariably be in error. Right and wrong generosity. The generous person will acquire wealth from right sources, and he will avoid giving to just anyone, so that he will have something to give to the right people at the right time and where it is fine. Furthermore, a person's generosity is properly measured by how they give in proportion to their wealth. For what is generous does not depend upon the quality of what is given, but on the state of the giver. Hence, one gives, who gives less than another may still be more generous if he has less to give. Just as Zarathustra and his followers made clear, Aristotle, Aristotle uh, said that it is not true generosity and not a virtue, but a vice to give to people who do not deserve charity. The generous person does not give to the wrong people at the wrong time, and so on. For the generous person is one whose spending fits his means and for the right purposes, while the one who spends to excess is wasteful. In contrast, wasteful people care nothing for what is fine and so take from any source without scruple, for they have an appetite for they for they have an appetite for giving, and the way or source does not matter to them. These unvirtuous, intemperate givers sometimes enrich people who ought to be poor, and would give nothing to people without with sound characters, but would give much to flatterers or those or to those providing some other pleasure. That's interesting. So what he's saying is that uh, in the Avesta or in the Pallavi text, there is a, a verse, and I can't recall it out of, uh, offhand, but it says, uh, do not give alms out of season, charity out of season. In other words, there is a right time and a right place to give the right amount to the right person for the right reason. In other words, if you know someone is evil, wicked, the druge, the lie, you would not help him uh, financially. That would be the same as engaging in evil. You would, you would become um, his evil um, uh, compatriot. So that's interesting. And you know, he, he talks about here that uh, in that section on um, generosity, he's, he's he's saying that look, just because you have money and out of some kind of guilt for being successful that you want to give to a charity, that's fine. But choose one wisely and choose, um, choose the amount wisely so that you're not giving indiscriminately um, in volume to an indiscriminate person uh, by a choice that isn't really a choice. It's unthinking. So that's interesting. Uh, the evil of greed. At the other extreme, the evil extreme from the indiscriminate givers are people who go to excess in taking, by taking anything from any source. Those, for example, who work at degrading op- uh, occupations, pimps and all such people, and uh, usurers who lend small amounts at high interest, for all these take the wrong amounts from wrong sources. Shameful love of gain is apparently their common feature. 
and they include those who take the wrong things from the wrong sources on large scale, such as tyrants who sack cities and plunder temples, and they are called wicked, impious, and unjust. The unjustly ungenerous also include the gambler and the robber. On temperance and intemperance. The intemperate person has an appetite for the most pleasant of pleasures, and his appetite leads him to choose these at the cost of everything else. Hence he also feels pain both when he fails to get something and when he has an appetite for it, since appetite is associated with pain. It would seem absurd, though, to suffer pain because of pleasure. Eating indiscriminately or drinking until we are too full is exceeding the quantity that suits nature, since the object of nature, natural appetite, is the feeling of a lack. Hence, these people are called gluttons, showing that they glut their bellies past what is right. That is how extra-slavish people turn out. In contrast, the temperate person uses his reason and will to follow the mean between excess and abstinence. If something is pleasant and conducive to health and fitness, he will desire this moderately and in the right way, and he will desire the same way anything else that is pleasant if it is no obstacle to health and fitness, and does not deviate from what is fine, and does not exceed his means. For the opposite sort of person likes these pleasures more than they are worth. Aristotle then concluded that temperate persons' appetites are for the right things in the right ways, at the right times, which is just what reason also prescribes. On the personality or on the personal responsibility of our character from Nicomachean Ethics. Aristotle also echoed Zarathustra's emphasis on free will and the development of our good or bad character. He said a person is, quote, reasonable for having his bad character, responsible for having his bad character by living carelessly, and similarly for being unjust by cheating or being intemperate by passing his time in drinking and the like. For each time, each type of activity produces the corresponding character. Only a totally insensible person would not know that each type of activity is the source of the corresponding state. Hence, if someone does what he knows will make him unjust, he is willingly unjust. Similarly, a sick person who has practiced an unhealthy lifestyle is responsible for his sickness. At one time, he had been free not to be sick. Though no longer free, once he has let himself go, just as it was up to us to throw a stone, since the origin was in us, though we can no longer take it back once we have thrown it. Furthermore, stemming from our proper sense of justice, he writes, We never censure someone if nature causes his ugliness, but if his lack of training or attention causes it, we do censure him. The same is true for weakness or maiming. For everyone would pity, not reproach someone if he were blind by nature or because of a disease or wound, but would censure him if his heavy drinking or some other form of intemperance made him blind. Nicomachean Ethics uh, 1114a 20-25 Okay, I think that's uh, important to touch on there. Um, 
because of our intemperance or because of our um, appetite in excess or deficiency, we often can become uh, disabled, we can become um, immobile, we can become blinded or deafened. Uh, those things are not our natural state, obviously. And uh, if we were born in that in natural state of such, then it is because of another cause that had that effect, not because of ours, but someone else's. Either way, uh, if a person is born in that condition, then no one should uh, censure him, as he says, or, or mock him or make fun of him. Or um, if a person is born with uh, facial deformity, uh, deformity, you would not uh, make fun of him. Now, what, he, what he's saying here is that what often does happen, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, is if a person shoots his own hair off, then he gets clowned often about shooting his own ear off, his lack of an ear, or he gets called one ear, or whatever it is, because of his own actions in a drunken stupor or whatever. So he, he draws an important line there between censuring someone's uh, physical maladies or um, uh, diseases and things like that that are self-imposed and those that are uh, from a natural state. I think that's important. Um, so on uh, Aristotle, gov government and citizen quality, he writes, uh, Eric Dryden writes, in his book Politics, Aristotle analyzed government, and like Plato, he understood the great importance of a country's nomos. Agreeing with his mentor, uh, he condemned tyranny, oligarchy, and pure dem democracy. But he believed that monarchy, aristocracy, and polity, or popular government, were good if a constitution effectively restrained the ruler's actions and if no person was above the law. On polity, or popular government, uh, Eric Dryden says, of the three good or legitimate types of government cons uh, constitutions, Aristotle preferred polity, which is a constitutional democracy or a republic. However, he cautioned that this system can exist only if the citizens possess and practice virtue, and if there is no excessive economic inequality. In order for those conditions to exist, he said, the middle, the middle class uh, must be the largest and dominant class, for it is more capable of reason, moderation, and fairness than either the rich or the poor. In contrast, both the rich and the poor find it difficult to follow reason. For when there is no middle class, and the poor greatly exceed in number, troubles arise and the state soon comes to an end. And when wealthy rob and plunder the people, that is wrong and unjust. Let me read it. And when wealthy people rob and plunder people, that is wrong and unjust. Aristotle, like Plato, knew these observations were true because of what they witnessed in Athens and other Greek polices, cities. In their lifetimes, the middle class shrank as drug bond political factions representing the rich and poor alternated in power just as in early 21st century Europe and America. Let me pause there and uh, speak on a word here. He uses the word drug vaunt. Um, for those who are unfamiliar with that, um, he uses this in the same way that Ashavant or Ashavan uh, means a man of uh, God or man of uh, power, holy power. 
uh, Drugvant is the opposite of Asha. And so it is instead of truth or righteousness, it is untruth and unrighteousness. So it is evil and chaotic. So a Drugvant is a person given to chaos and evil and these things. So let me continue. Moreover, a polity cannot survive unless education includes the teaching of virtue and how the good life is to be lived. For a state is not a mere society having a common place established for the prevention of crime and for the sake of economic exchange. Instead, the state is the union of families and villages for a happy and honorable life. In conclusion, he said, Political uh, society exists for the sake of noble actions, not of mere companionship. And we see that a lot today in uh, American society, especially in the uh, more populous inner cities and things like that. We see that um, uh, children are raised up in education, but not in ethics. And when you raise up a child in education and a lack or dearth of ethics, uh, in what is good and virtuous, then you raise a menace to society because you have an educated criminal. And uh, I think American schools and education systems would do well to remember this because they have largely forgotten it. And at home as well, we're raising children who have no ethics, who um, have no respect for one another, for their parents, for their teachers, or anyone else in authority, and for their fellow man as they pass them by. So I will continue here. It is important, therefore, that citizens be trained from early youth to nurture within themselves honorable thoughts, words, and deeds. However, Aristotle knew that this goal can be subverted because even at an early age, children may acquire traits that are mean and low from what they see and hear. So again, uh, this is this is because of a laziness on our part as parents and on our part as instructors and teachers in society. Uh, if we allow um, the wanton destruction of our children's minds, uh, we usually do so by letting them have full reign of media because media controls and uh, propagandizes everything in our life. And it takes the things that uh, should be virtuous for example, as a meat-eating society, we need to know how to butcher uh, animals, how to kill animals and butcher them, to hunt them, and provide for ourselves. Instead of being part of a market system where we have to buy everything from a grocery store. And so when in a movie or a TV, television show, or in actuality, a child today in America sees the butchering of an animal, he's disgusted. He's taken aback, visibly shaken visibly moved in a way that uh, he finds it disturbing and horrific. And yet he turns around and watches um, horror flicks and gore, uh, horror and gore films where hacker and slash films where they're murdering people and shooting them and cutting limbs off and butchering them and playing the video games that are championed for the same thing and putting themselves in the place of a first person shooter or uh, someone killing someone with a knife in a video game where the, the person playing the game is the actor. And so <clears throat> we desensitize our youth to horrific things and we let them forget the virtues of things that are seemingly horrible to them but are in fact virtuous. 
because how do you feed your family um, if there is no market you have to feed your family on the land and 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 we have forgotten that and it is taken out of it's censored out of our media uh, because of the propagandizing um, which leads everyone every child to believe that you cannot live without the system that you're living in you can't live off the grid in other words okay so I digress uh, so in order to promote the personal virtue necessary for the maintenance of generally free society there must be censorship of obscenity then now he's saying that this is necessary so it is necessary number one to treat our children in good thoughts words and deeds it is necessary uh, at an early age to maintain um, honorable um, attitudes and actions from our children not mean and low um, attitudes and actions and thoughts and words and deeds from things that they hear and learn uh, and indeed there is nothing which a lawmaker should be more careful to forbid in than indecency of speech for the light utterance of shameful words in other words the the um, uh, being so aloof and um, slinging around cuss words and obscenities uh, it leads to shameful acts so it first starts with a word that comes from a thought and from that it bridges to a deed and so we can see the the logical formulation of an action beginning from a thought through a word into a deed uh, then uh, he added, uh, uh, Aristotle added that clearly we should also banish pictures and stage plays or tales, movies, which are indecent. Let the rulers see that there is no image or picture representing unseemly actions. And of course, we like to have our um, society uncensored, and therefore we would not agree with this today, but it is necessary for teaching our children. We, we sacrifice our children's well-being, education, and spirituality in order that we can see and say what we want to see and say without it being censored. Aristotle warned against this because uh, the society would turn into what it has today. And we, uh, you know, experience the problems that we're experiencing because of it. Consistent with Aristotle's viewpoint, of modern mass communications media that promotes and glorifies ignoble thoughts, words, and deeds will erode virtue among the citizens. I'm going to read that again and listen carefully. Consistent with Aristotle's viewpoint, a modern mass media communications that promotes and glorifies, glorifies ignoble thoughts, words, and deeds will erode virtue among the citizens. This drug vaunt power and mass media is absolutely power this drug vaunt power will most heavily influence the vulnerable and the inexperienced young and what do we do we sit our children down in front of a tv a device an iphone an ipad a computer and we let them have their will uncensored without parental controls without um without talking uh, with them about the things they're seeing And the result will be a generation that is incapable of practicing or even understanding virtue or happiness. 
And that is exactly what happens. We, we allow our children to come up watching and experiencing these things um, without control over it at all, without any kind of say in it. They form their opinions and their attitudes and personalities with every single thing that they watch. They absorb it. They idolize it. They champion it. It becomes to them a role model in the place of uh, we as parents and as aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters. Um, we should be we should be doing that. We should be helping to raise these children in ways that are virtuous and good and noble. Aristotle, uh, such a, he said, and the result will be a generation that is incapable of practicing or understanding virtue and happiness. Such a citizenry, Aristotle would conclude cannot maintain a stable and free society. He speaks of causes and revolutions and collapses of states. Now remember he says in here that such a citizenry without ethics, without virtue, cannot maintain a stable and free society. So here he talks about what happens when those things are impossible to maintain. In politics, Aristotle also discussed various causes of revolution and civil war. This is very important today. In general, he said, the universal and chief cause of this revolutionary feeling is the desire of equality. When men think that they are equal to others who have more than themselves, or the desire of superiority, when conceiving themselves to be superior they think that they have the same or less than their inferiors. Therefore, either in oligarchic societies, great inequality of wealth and status, or a socialist-inspired forced equality may cause revolt. So, we think that we're fixing things with our left-wing socialist movement. But it's not. It's going to cause another inequality and one that's going to be on a drastic scale, a forced one, as opposed to one where you can work your way out of in a capitalist society. Um, Moreover, differences in the natures, loyalties, and perceptions of ethnic groups will have the same dismal result. So, okay, before we get out of control here, what he's saying is that um, different ethnic uh, ethnicities tend to think in different ways. This is a a virtue. This is a good. So when we bring all those together and mandate a same type of thinking in a multicultural state, we begin to have issues because um, we've all seen how um, we've changed our, in the last 20 or 30 years, we've changed our educational standards from, and, and we can see that in the IQ test being changed to EQ test, or instead of uh, intelligence quotient, it became, became the emotional quotient. Uh, and they did this for specific ethnicities who tested uh, less well than the, than the um, majority uh, ethnicity in those schools. Uh, so, yeah, but he talks about that here, and, and he emphasizes that because uh, different ethnicities think in different ways, have different virtues, have different uh, uh, work ethics because of the way that it's, it's, it's ingrained in their, uh, their very genetics. That when you bring those together, there becomes issues because one who does not have that work ethic 
and one who does have that work ethic will appear to have great disparity or inequality uh, between them. So among specific causes for revolt or war, Aristotle emphasized the disastrous results of incompatible ethnic groups living together in the same country. And far more than any other cause, he provided examples of this problem from historical Greek colonies. Another cause of revolution, Aristotle writes, is a difference of races, which do not at once acquire a common spirit. For a state is not a multitude brought together by accident. Hence the admission of foreigners to to colonies, either at the time of their foundation or afterwards, has generally produced a revolution. For example, the Achaeans, who joined the Trozenians in the foundation of Sybaris, or Sybaris, being the more numerous, afterwards expelled the original colonists. Hence the curse fell on Sybaris. At Thurii, the Sybarites quarreled with their fellow colonists, thinking that the land belonged to them. They wanted too much of it and were driven out. And were driven out. At Byzantium, the new colonists were detected in a conspiracy and were expelled by force of arms. The people of Antissa, who had received Chian exiles, fought with them and drove them out. The Zanclians, after having received the Samians, were driven out by of their own city. The citizens of Apollyana on the Black Sea, after the introduction of a fresh body of colonists, had a revolution. The Syracusans, after the expulsion of their tyrants, having admitted foreigners and mercenaries to the rights of citizenship, quarreled and came to blows. The people of Amphipolis, having received Chalcidian, Chalcidian colonists, were nearly all expelled by them. Therefore, Plato and Aristotle understood the disastrous effects of a true nation transforming into a multi-ethnic state. And in fact, a dispossession similar to that which Aristotle described was suffered by all Greeks as Alexander the Conqueror's empire linked the incompatible civilizations of classical Greece and the Levantine West Asia. During this period, three Levantine immigrants into Athens asserted that everything, even the soul, is matter. Diogenes of Sinope was a bankrupt moneylender who came from Asia Minor or Turkey. And in Athens, he found the philosophy called cynicism. He and his cynic followers would not bathe nor work. They begged for food, advocated free love, and they relieved themselves and fornicated in public like the dogs they were accused of being. Epicurus of Samos founded Epicureanism. He and his followers sought an ambitionless life of temperate pleasure-seeking and avoidance of pain, and they shunned civic responsibilities. Zeno of Citium was a half-Greek and half-Semite merchant from Asia Minor who, after migrating to Athens, founded Stoicism. He and his other Stoics sought the suppression of emotions and an indifference to pleasure and pain. And at first, Zeno even espoused a system of value-free and anarchistic communism. Adherents to all of these doctrines rejected racial and national boundaries and considered themselves citizens of the world. It is significant that no modern textbook on ancient political theory quotes any part of this woeful litany. Therefore, the vast majority do not even mention this, 
cause of civil disorder, despite Aristotle's extensive emphasis, such as the academic self-censorship that, that afflicts a totalitarian democracy. A few generations after Aristotle, an adulterated Hellenistic Greece and Macedonia were absorbed into the Roman Empire. However, during the early centuries of the Common Era, the Roman nation itself slowly dissolved into the multi-ethnic chaos of its own empire. By the Common Era's 5th century, the then largely Romanless Roman Empire's western half was controlled by a horde of Germanic immigrants, and these refugees were soon absorbed by the conquering German war Germanic warriors who invaded from the outside of the imperial realm. Therefore, in the empire's Greek-speaking eastern half, the unnatural political state continued while shrinking for another thousand years until 1453 CE with, the, with Greece at its center. But in this eastern so-called Byzantine empire, even before the 5th century, classical civilization which Greece created and Rome inherited ceased to exist. It had been replaced by a westward expansion of Levantine people, culture, and religion. In the next uh, installment, we'll talk about the Levantines, because we can see here that um, he's uh, talking about the introduction of Levantine values into Indo-European uh, cultures, and so we want to see the effect of those. And by Levantine, he means Samaria, Babylonia, uh, and such as the like. Okay, so that's it for this time, and next time we will pick up on the Levantines uh, with an eye toward virtue and civilization, and see what we find there. Okay, hope you enjoyed yourself, and as always, my friends, wish today happiness to you.